Hi folks, I'm Christian Haynes with Gamers with Glasses. Today I'm happy to be joined by Thomas Vandenberg, the developer behind the studio Noyo. Thomas or Noyo is best known for the excellent Kingdom series, Kingdom and Kingdom New Lands in particular, which is a side-scrolling strategy game. More recently, Noyo has released Cloud Gardens, a seemingly post-human gardening game available both on PC and Xbox. How are you doing? Great, thanks for having me, that's fun. Yeah, no, it's a real pleasure. I'm doing well, doing well. <laughs> um, so, you know, we always like to start with maybe some light opening questions. And, you know, one of the first things we always like to ask developers is what they happen to be playing at the moment, if anything. So, <laughs> exactly. Ironically, um, I just moved to a new apartment uh, in Berlin, actually. So I oh, haven't uh, got my gaming PC set up yet. Um, I was actually kind of working my way through some of the triple a staple games i really found the like re refound the joy of just like sitting on the couch with a controller and playing some 50 hour open world game and just checking off the collectibles and stuff it's kind of mindless but for some reason it, i just uh, yeah found a new joy in that and once i do get my pc set up i'm actually looking forward to try out uh, god of war that uh, was just released on steam i think so yeah apparently it's a great port too right um yeah I don't know. I just, I have this new PC and I just want to play games with really good graphics and not too much thinking. That sounds oh. nice. But of course, as any indie gamer, I do have to mention, I just played the Outer Wilds expansion, which was of course very good. I've heard really good things. I've heard it's hard that there's a real sort of difficulty spike at yeah. one point. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little more horror also, from what I understand. Yeah, exactly. But I haven't Those had a chance to dig true. into it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It sounds great. I mean, that was a game that it took me a while to dig into, but, you know, when I did, it, it's a rewarding game. Very, yes. Excellent. And um, it's the kind of game that you want to talk to everybody about, but you can't because of spoilers. It's perfect yeah. in that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's great. Um, yeah, it's always a funny question of, do you spoil folks on just the premise of the game or not? Because it's yeah. also kind of fun to go into it and have that premise exactly. happen. Uh, but we won't, maybe we won't get into that too much, um, for the sake of those who haven't played it. Yeah. So Tom, you become this person who's like pitching it to all your friends. Oh my God, you should play Outer Wilds. I can't tell you why, but you have to play it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are often the best games. All right. The ones that you, I can't tell you why you have to play it, but trust me. So annoying. (laughs) Uh, um, yeah. So how did you get into game development, Thomas? Um, I think I started messing, messing around with Flash, um, in when I was a teen, maybe 14, 15 years old, um, just doing tutorials and making things that are almost games or like screensavers or just like trying different techniques in Flash and that kind of grew into making a real game. Um, the original version of Kingdom, like the Flash game, was kind of the first game that I really finished um, start to end. You know, like it has a menu, you can you can restart the game. The game will tell you you won or like game over, you know, like a like a full full game. Uh, quite a bit later. Yeah. How long did you work on that? Um, just off and on as a hobby thing. Next next to studying for maybe, I think three years, three or four years. Oh wow! Well, that's on it, Kingdom. Yeah. That's on Kingdom, the Flash game. A lot of that was maybe learning pixel art doing tutorials on that on how to make pixel art how to do animations stuff like that and then in the end i had all this kind of loose stuff and there was a period where i figured okay i gotta just tie it up and and make one game out of it like out of these different little animations yeah sprites that i had 
did you find yourself uh mourning uh the loss of flash when it you know is basically <laughs> stripped from the web absolutely i think but maybe more than that what i feel was lost was the, the culture of flash games but maybe that was already lost for a while like at some point people who started doing this professionally of course they have to make money out of it which comes with a different mindset like the early flash games there was a lot of this just blatant copying and but also like wild creativity you know just the weirdest games because the bar was so low and i think that was very fun uh, but then of course there were advertisements that you had to put in games you know they started to become more like what mobile games are now at some point so maybe things were lost way before uh, google chrome dropped support for the flash player and it's interesting is you see it still have these kind of like you know, communities of developers around things like Twine or then even more yeah. like bigger like Unity. But in particular, yeah. like when you're talking about like Unity, it seems to be a little bit more mediated by the company and by the, mm -hmm. the sort of corporate governance of the platform itself. Yeah, yeah. I guess for Flesh, there was also kind of the idea that it wasn't made to build games with. So it's almost like you're abusing it to do something else, which was always kind of fun. I mean, that came with horrible performance, like a lot of things that you wanted to do in a game, just you couldn't. But then it also felt like everybody together was discovering what you could do with Flash uh, for a long time. And that was very fun, you know? There would be a new tutorial on like, oh, how to apply this technique or how to apply this like a bit of script. And that's very inspiring, I think. Well, it's interesting too because it puts things on a different track, right? It's like uh, sometimes constraints can lead to really interesting creativity. Yeah. And yeah. if you think about like, you know, it's different than like seeing what their latest version of the Unreal Engine is going to allow you to do in terms of, exactly. uh, you know, fidelity and models or textures. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Um, and so what was the process like of, bringing kingdom from a flash game to something that you could distribute it you know on steam or other platforms um so i think initially it was kind of you know once i'd gotten to grasp with unity we had a phase where we tried to, to build it as an iphone game in um cocos 2d i think the engine was called Though we quite quickly abandoned that and, and went with Unity. And once I'd gotten to grips with Unity, I was amazed how quickly I could reproduce everything I had done in the Flash game in two years. That was basically an afternoon in Unity. I mean, it's oh set up to do exactly that, right? Like render sprites to the screen and move them around and, and detect collisions. Like, it's all there. So that was kind of funny. Um, and it was also fun to realize, okay, well, we got all, we've got all this stuff that was there already. Like, now, now we can take it a step further, you know? Now we can work on improving the atmosphere, making better sprites, adding more gameplay elements. So, yeah. What are some of the gameplay elements that got added into the Unity version? So the Flash game is extremely simple. You mm -hmm. have one castle, you cannot expand it in any way. You can raise the walls, but that's it. Mm -hmm. And for the, 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 what's it called? The standalone game, let's say, or like the first PC game, we really thought of, okay, what would make this a complete strategy game? Like we need, to kind of flesh out the game loop a little bit, um, have a have a nicer difficulty curve for a longer time. 
have more stuff to discover in the forest. I think if you're familiar with Kingdom, yes. there's the forest where you can discover new stuff to add to your kingdom. There wasn't any of that in the Flash game. There was just like these borders where you could walk to and then that, there, it would stop there. And immediately we thought it would be so cool if you could go into the forest and then it's dangerous because that's where the, the monsters are, but you can also find stuff. So yeah, obvious things, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> just lateral expansion of the game concept. Literally lateral, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, that's great. I, I no, I, I love Kingdom in part because of the just like strangeness of having some of the elements you'd usually find in, say, like a forex strategy game. Yeah, uh, incorporate on a side-scrolling platform, and that kind of minimalism is really nice. Yeah, it's good to start from a small seed. That's what we did, and just add things to that. You know, like add things that feel good. Kind of, oh, it would be nice if the player had an excuse to go deeper in the forest. Okay, well, we'll put something there deeper in the forest, and just. None of it was very premeditated. We just kind of went and we played it by ear. That's great. Uh, so, you know, at a certain point, you ended up, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, like selling the IP for Kingdom to Raw yeah. Fury. I don't know if that's licensed or if that's completely sold, but I'm wondering what that process was like, what your feelings about it were like. Was it liberating? Was it nerve wracking? Or There were kind of two reasons um, for me to want that. Um, one is that I wanted to to work on other things. Like I, I had, you know, worked on Pixel King, Kings, Queens, and Knights for, I think at that point, seven, eight years. So I kind of figured, okay, I want to try out other stuff as well. You know, you also want to challenge yourself. Um, and on the other hand, the game itself, though, had a, quite a fan base. And I felt that they deserve more as well. Just that at that point, I'm not the right person to work on that. But it would be a waste to not give those players something more, you know, a sequel or um, uh, an expansion. So then the logical conclusion was, okay, Rock Fury can go ahead and build this sequel and I go on and do other things. And I kind of chose to, to sell the IP completely because I'm a person who is very like focused on a single thing. It's hard for me to, to have work on two things or to be involved in too many different projects. So I figured as long as I have some kind of involvement, it'll be hard for me to let it go or to mm. not be like controlling or to feel like uh, I have to meddle with design decisions <laughs> in an unproductive way. So I kind of figured it's better to just like, uh, yeah, let it go completely, hand it over to them and let them do what they want with it and, you know, not feel like they're doing, taking it in a wrong direction or, you know, anything like that. And I, I imagine, or at least I hope, that it was also pretty good seed funding for the next project or the next projects. Uh, yeah, totally. I think um, I think it was a good deal for the both of us. If you right. see, you know, how long the franchise has been continued since, uh, that was definitely. I mean, there's still uh, stuff you know, coming out, <laughs> and there is still stuff coming out. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it, it's definitely uh, for both of us a better situation than if I had sat on the IP and not great. Um, released anything, which I wouldn't have done probably. <laughs> yeah, that's really, that's really great. It's nice to see something like live on, but also not have the developer feel like they've kind of pigeonholed themselves in yeah. to a place because of either financial reasons or fan expectations or what have you. Um, yeah. So... Was Cloud Gardens the next thing you worked on or was it like series of prototypes, projects that maybe some came to fruition, um, some got abandoned? How'd that happen? Yeah, this is this is an interesting subject, uh, especially in the phase uh, where I'm at now, but we'll get to that later. So obviously after you kind of, you know, cut loose from a project, you have this 
Greenfield's attitude of like, oh my God, I'm free. I can do anything now. Like I can build any game. And then maybe there is the kind of corresponding disappointment when it turns out that it's not actually that easy to just build something else. You know, maybe there's even a bit of like, uh, what's the word? Like homesickness is not quite the right term, but you know, this longing for, well, if I was just working on Kingdom, it was super obvious what we'd be doing now. You know, we could just be adding content. There was like all this stuff to do, but now that I'm like in this, on this blank canvas, it's like, oh, whoops. Um, so I worked, like you said, I worked on a couple of prototypes. One of them stood out. I wanted to kind of build an MMO in a similar kind of post-apocalyptic trash world as um, uh, Cloud Gardens. Um, I worked on that for quite a bit, but it was it was a struggle. It was fun. I learned a lot, but it was really two years long. I struggled with also the core game concept, wanting to keep it simple, but then feeling like, well, then the player doesn't have enough to do, etc. And it really took... I think two or three years until I had the seed of what would become Cloud Gardens. This was a plant simulation from this other MMO game that I was going to build. And the plant simulation itself actually looked quite fun. So I was like, okay, scrap the MMO. That's oh, wow. never going to work. Let's just polish up this plant simulation and, and release that as a game by itself. Yeah, an MMO, that's ambitious. I mean, um, it's everybody has to make a mistake once, I guess. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, I, I'm also thinking right now of um, what is the studio? Uh, I'm completely blanking on their name. There's a studio that's tried to make what they call a tiny MMO, um, a smaller studio. Oh, yeah. The, is it the Tale of Tales? The game is called? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, they, and that's been a bit of a rocky thing yeah. for them they let, had to let go about two-thirds of their studio oh, um yeah. if I remember correctly um just because it you know even they went into early access but I don't know if the early access numbers weren't there and just you know it, it's a tricky thing MMOs it's I mean I guess there is always the point of thinking that you can do it but you just have to look at the facts and see how hard it is to get something like that off the ground um my attitude was though like if I can build something super simple by myself and, you know, a thousand people play it, then I would be happy. You know, I don't need it to be a huge commercial success supporting a huge studio. I just want to make basically a little online social experiment and then I would be happy. So I, I, I thought I could set the bar low, but I mean, technically you cannot set the bar low. People still have to be able to connect to a server. The server has to remember state. Like there is no way to not do all that work yet. Yeah. And then, and the netcode itself is that's its own huge thing. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, you can have a great game and then have really bad netcode, and that's kind of the end yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, and there's, just yeah, go ahead. Well, there is unfortunately in games not a way to do things quick and dirty. Like you can have rough stylized graphics, but the code behind it still has to be very precise and correct. So. Exactly. And just so folks know, the game I was talking about before was Book of Travels, and that's Might and Delight, who are probably best known. Oh, sorry, I mixed up the name, yeah. Yeah, no, Book no, I Travels. just wanted to make sure, just for their sake, um, because we have talked to them, and I think maybe we're interviewing them as well in the near future. Um, and uh, yeah, they're probably best known for Shelter and the, their animal simulation yeah, games. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Cloud Garden, that's amazing. Started off as a plant Thanks. simulation component <laughs> of what was going to be a post-apocalyptic MMO, which is interesting in of itself because there's like something when you when you approach Cloud Gardens, and I think even in some of the marketing, the initial sort of like way it was framed, it was post-apocalyptic. But you could uh, you could imagine like 
encountering this game and not realizing it was post-apocalyptic, right? It like sort of reads that way, but there's yeah. also a way in which like, it's not as if there's like a sort of scrolling story like in Star Wars or something, or it's like in the year 2500 yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, we were just very inspired by, you know, um, photographs of urban, urban exploration, like mm. people who go out to abandoned places and then take photos of it. So whether those places are abandoned just be because there are no humans or something bad happened or whether they're just abandoned is like unclear. So I think a lot of cloud gardens reflect that some places are just abandoned for an unspecified reason. <laughs> yeah, it makes me think of, uh, do you know Alan Weissman's The World Without Us? No. It's a book, I think it became a television series, but basically started off with landscapes that had been abandoned like Chernobyl uh -huh. um, yeah. and, and the like um, and sort of extrapolated from there to try to imagine what the earth would be like after our extinction like cool. at different periods yeah. and different stages yeah. um, and I always get that vibe when I'm playing this I, I've taught yeah. that book before and I wish I'd had this game uh, oh, cool. to teach out. alongside it um, yeah it's such a universally I think something that appeals to people you know photos of an overgrown abandoned building most people just find that something attractive to look at. And that's kind of what we just started off with. This idea. Why do you think that's appealing? Because I, I totally agree. But, I, but I've also always go back and forth why I think it's appealing. I don't know. I find that hard to say exactly why it's so appealing. Because if, you, you know, if it's just something that's intuitively appealing, like you look at it and most people will say, oh, that, that looks beautiful. I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to come from uh, I'm an utterly misanthropic and wish all humans would just go away. Yeah, I don't think so. It's yeah. something between the balance of, of, for me at least, of something that was created by humans, but not completely controlled by humans. Like you cannot control the way grime drips off the side of a building and then is overgrown by vines. These are just processes that leave certain traces in a certain shape. And I always greatly enjoy looking at those kind of details. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's lovely because it's then our the things we make might have a history that stretches beyond us, a history that we couldn't even predict. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Um, so you cleave off this portion of an MMO and turn it into cloud gardens. Um, what were some of the challenges surrounding that? Like, what you know, at that point, like, okay, you've got a you've got a mechanic, maybe you've got like some logic there. Yeah. You have some code that doesn't necessarily make a game, especially <laughs> a game, which, you know, I think one of the things that people often, and I've heard other like podcasts talk about this and other folks that I know talk about this, people are always surprised by how long the game's campaign is. It's actually yeah. quite a meaty campaign, which is great by the way. Um, and you have these biome shifts and things like that. Um, but yeah, what's the, what are some of the challenges with making it into a game? Did the decision to clean, you know turn it into levels come right away so um first of the insane thing with games is that this core code of growing the plants i built that in maybe a week or a couple of days for the mmo wow. and it's virtually unchanged for cloud gardens and the two years of work is none of that core can you imagine how much work it is to build a game outside of, you know, just the core thing it does? That's always what baffles me, you know, like input code, like going through menus, having this menu where you can select items for the sandbox mode in Cloud Gardens. Those things end up taking so much time compared to the very core of it, you know? Okay, well, that's that's an A-side, but... Um, no, it's what, important you to know. The, 
yeah. I just wanted to mention it. Um, you asked what is the what was kind of the challenge once you once I was at that point. I think the biggest challenge was deciding how much of a game it had to be. Um, or, um, before Oscar had shown us all with Townscaper that you can just take the gamble and just make a full-on sandbox game, call it a toy, and and people will dig it. Um, retrospectively, I don't know if I would have made the same choice of making a whole campaign because at that point I really felt like, you know, it has to be a game. People are expecting a game. They expect something that they can finish. I myself also find a certain satisfaction in that. I kind of think that if you present people with a sandbox, they can be paralyzed. But if you kind of slowly trick them into being creative through a campaign, it's much easier for them to get into the sandbox. So then kind of navigating this balance between campaign game and sandbox game, that was kind of the big the big challenge for us. That's interesting. Um, I mean, to ask the blunt question, do you feel like you managed to succeed? Were you satisfied with that balance by the end? Um, I'm, yeah, I'm very satisfied. I'm, I'm very proud of how the game turned out. Also, as you mentioned, the, the quite meaty campaign that the game has, um, that was a product of me and Eli just working together for quite a long time and him having time to do a lot of levels while I was still building, uh, gamepad support for, for Xbox or something. Like there was just a lot of technical stuff to do. And in the meantime, he had a lot of time to actually just build content, which was great. Right. Um, yeah. And so the Xbox version was sort of in the works alongside the PC version then? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, kind of. And no, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with where it's at. I kind of, there was a point where I wondered like if I had taken half as long to build the game and skip the campaign, would it have been successful or more successful? You don't know, you kind of ask yourself these questions. There's no way to tell. Right. It's, it's hard not to, right? Because you get, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of work and it's hard not to look back yeah. and ask, you know, could I have some way less time? Could I have like, shaved off know? some, yeah. Um, are you, there things that you did end up cutting from the game that, uh, you know, you wish you could have kept? Yeah, there is one thing that I still think about and I'm quite sad that I didn't make it. There was really a time where I started work on this. I wanted to have a more in-game way to share uh, creations from the sandbox. And what my idea was, was that these would pop up off in the distance next to your own creations. Kind of like how you navigate the campaign map. You could just seamlessly navigate everything that other people created without having to leave the game or without having to scroll through a list and select which things you want to see. No, the game just presents you with everything that other people have created and you don't have to kind of decide which things are worth viewing. I thought that would be very cool and a very cool way to just see all of the cool stuff that people made side by sides. But I started working on it and then launch date came up and I think Eli said to me, Thomas, do you really think that you can do this before <laughs> And just somebody confronting you with this makes you think, okay, yeah, he's right. I can't, like, what am I thinking? I mean, it's, it's on the one hand, though, it's good that you have that, like, sort of practical mindset yes. as well. Yes. And somebody to kind of, like, say, hey, uh, yeah, you know, I just finished uh, reading a book uh, that mostly focuses on the development of Jet the Far Shore, ah, uh, cool. which was a bit of a nightmare of production and definitely without you know casting aspersions or anything like that was definitely an instance of an indie developer uh who scaled up but couldn't handle the production side very well right and then actually brought in family members 
to handle oh, wow. the production side, but oh, only wow. after already spending six years on the game. Oh, um, you know, after I think they got the PlayStation deal um, yeah. support, which kind of seems like to me that it probably saved the game in certain ways. But um, yeah. yeah, it's, you know, those types of things are the things that are easy to ignore, but a game doesn't get out without them. Yes, exactly. And I think this is a super interesting kind of field of like, how do you manage to also actually release a game and how do you weigh how much time you invest in a game because you can't make a game in six months and is that a game that's worth producing or if you spend three years on it like how significantly different is that game like i don't know it's yeah it's fascinating yeah. to me and i mean and, and that can be a balance of like the financial end but also just a balance of your own sort of personal expression and yeah I, totally Yesterday, I think the game that was the best-selling game on uh, iOS on the Apple phones and on uh -huh. iPhones uh, was a knockoff of the game Unpacking that oh, presumably wow. was very rapidly made. You know, um, and it's a pretty like it's relatively impressive as a knockoff, to be honest. But it's also just kind of like. I imagine the satisfaction of making that was probably not the same as the satisfaction of spending the years working on unpacking. Yeah, that is crazy. Um, that is, I mean, if you know exactly what you're making, it's so much easier. I mean, the team behind unpacking, they spent days, weeks, months, like finicking with design decisions, going back and forth on things. They must have, like, that's how games work. Then if you have a literal example and somebody just tells you build that, yeah, it's so much easier. Well, it's also especially since it's a game that like shouldn't work, right? Like if I, yeah. I told my partner who doesn't really play games about it, you know, and she was like, why would you play that? We still have boxes <laughs> that are unpacked from when we moved like two years ago. Yeah, oh boy, you know? yeah. And I'm like, no, but it's really relaxing and enjoyable and satisfying and it tells a story. And, uh, but yeah, if you don't have to ask those questions, like how can I actually exactly. get a player to like enjoy yeah. this? And yeah, you just kind of, yeah. you can buzz through it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know this because I, I sent you it, uh, but I wrote an article about cloud gardens um, yeah. and about climate change and things. And I, and I don't want to ask you about the article, don't worry. Uh, but what I do want to ask you about is like how you were thinking and whether or not you were thinking about environmentalism or the climate crisis while you were working on the game. Is that something that came afterwards, before, et cetera? I think in as much as that I think about it all the time, I was thinking about it while making the game. Um, I didn't make any conscious decisions in the game about like a, a certain message. This never influenced design. Actually, you know, if you see the game as like, oh, there's all this trash left by humans and that maybe is bad. And then there are plants and plants are good. Like if you want to equate it like so simply, that actually doesn't even work because the stuff that you put down the trash feeds the plants. Um, if you wanted to tell a story, you probably wouldn't do that. But I needed this just purely for game design reasons. Uh, to just to connect the dots between plants and stuff. I was like, okay, well, then the stuff makes the plants grow, sure. Um, yeah, and also in the sense that maybe it paints a picture that, you know, the planet is fine without people, like you're making something that's pretty without the involvement of humans or, you know, things that are actually polluting or maybe overbuilt or, you know, like just huge industrial installations. They are actually beautiful in their own right. Like, I don't know what kind of message that is. So in that sense, like, I never try to, send a certain message except that you know plants look good so if people come out of it with more of a love for plants that is also a good effect yeah no, i i 
that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think, you know, often like, you know, didacticism or like being really strongly moralistic can work sometimes in a game, but oftentimes it can mm-hmm. also just like repel people before they even start playing it. Yeah. Uh, and having something sort of like the way I, you know, I think about specifically with cloud gardens is just that it doesn't tell you what to think, but it does bring you to a place where you're probably going to start thinking about yeah. those environmental questions, right? It like, yeah. it prompts something, right? It like yeah. sort of poses a question. Yeah. And I appreciated that. And also like, you know, there's something truthful about the fact that even if we do manage to recover from the climate crisis in some manner, something I'm increasingly pessimistic about, but even <laughs> if, even if yeah. we do, you're not going to have some return to some kind of pure, pristine earth. You're going to end up with yeah. something that's a little messier and more hybrid. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, no, that's, I really appreciate that. Um, and if we could get yeah. to that point, like, I think our, our environment could be a lot greener, the one we live in. And I think we also, you see that now um, that more people are conscious about that, um, which is a good thing, I think. But we can work on that, you know, like cities can be a lot greener. We can think more about uh, when you plan a city, like how, how do you make sure that there is a lot of green for everybody? And uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I have a friend um, who does urban uh, agricultural planning who cool. used to work for the city of Minneapolis. Now she works for the city of Seattle, um, but basically like is a, one of the people in charge of helping design and support these projects that are incorporating sort of farmland in the middle of, you know, Seattle cool. with yeah. this big city and uh, green technologies and the large buildings and things like that. And it, it, it's interesting, like, I'm not sure if those are like, the end all be all of responding to these issues but at the very least right they're an element that you know sort of challenges this idea that you can either have cities or you can have this like wonderful bucolic pastoral landscape where everything's pretty yeah exactly no like you said i also don't think it's a solution it's not a significant change whether we plant like five more trees inside of a city that's not going to do anything but maybe just the appreciation for you know having this green um could help a little bit also in other places so maybe we could start moving towards, you know, what's coming after Cloud Gardens. And um, I, I don't know, are you still supporting Cloud Gardens in the sense of are you still doing updates to it or is it pretty yeah. much finished? I, I released a patch last week, uh, yeah, mostly to fix, to, uh, fix a couple of issues. Um, I'm still thinking about whether to do a, a bigger patch. There's one feature that a lot of people have requested that now I think, you know, talking to the community, I finally figured out how I would implement it. From a gameplay perspective, now of course the technical part remains, so that's always a bit more work. Um, What's the feature, if I, you don't mind me asking? Oh, actually, the most requested thing is that people want to be able to freely move the camera while also placing stuff. Um, the thing is, you kind of run out of buttons on a mouse, like to and move the camera, both move the camera and also place stuff. And I don't like interleaving control schemes so much. Where it's like, oh yeah, hold shift and press the right mouse button and middle mouse at the same time to zoom in and out. Then I think just uh, it, it get, but on the other hand, people who are very familiar with the game, for them, such a control scheme is no problem at all that you also have to realize. Like for new players, you cannot put this on the screen and say, oh yeah, just press these six buttons at the same time to do so-and-so. That's a nightmare. But for familiar players, after a thousand hours of playing, if you tell them, hey, hold shift to also be able to do this other thing, for them, it's brilliant. So that's always right. kind of the, the, the struggle of... of designing an elegant control scheme yeah you don't want the 15 yeah. hour onboarding process of like a 
you know, total yeah. war game where there's like 15 or 20 exactly. like keyboard shortcuts. Exactly. I like this to be very gentle, you know, like basically present the player with one button where they can do their first action in the game and then kind of rely on that. And once they are seeing the need for another button, you introduce mm. the other button, not telling them before they see the need for it. So, um, but now a lot of people have shown me that they do see the need for being able to move the camera and place objects, like kind of a free camera, but also placing objects. So, and I've asked them, it's it's cool, you know, on Discord, you can really just ask like, okay, um, like, how do you see this feature? Like picture it, like you are doing this, which other button could, would you want to press to do this thing? And there are players who will really go into thorough detail about, you know, this is how it should be. And then you reply, well, if you do so-and-so, it's a problem because this other feature won't work and they will think with you. It's cool. Right. It's great to have that dialogue and have it not be yeah. really frustrating as well, a kind dialogue. Yeah, and, and people really put thought into it, you know, not like, oh yeah, why don't you just make an extra button that fixes everything? They really put thought in it. Like, yeah, that's cool. You're not designing a solo, like a solely uh, Cloud Garden's dedicated hardware device? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. No. Not yet. No. Um, and so you're supporting Cloud Garden's continue patch it. Are you in pre-production or production on a new project? And that's something you can talk about? Yeah, I, I think I can talk about the shape of it. Um, so I've actually um, met up with a friend in Berlin, um, Friedemann, one of the people from Grizzly Games who did Islanders. Islanders oh. is the other game that uh, Cloud Gardens was in the bundle with. Um, and we said to each other, you know, let's try to, let's try to build a game together. And we kind of really thought about this process, you know, of like, how do you get lost in production and not knowing where to go? And one of the antidotes to this is just a very strict timeline. So that's what we did. We said, we're going to build a game in eight months. And we have a super strict timeline for when production is supposed to start, like when prototyping phase is over. Um, so we had about a month and a half for prototyping, which was quite hectic and quite fun. I'd never done this in my life. Just one day, one prototype, super janky, just to show off some certain game um, game mechanic and then build a whole bunch of those. And at the end of that period, we, we picked a, a prototype. I can't talk yet about exactly what it is. We're also kind of figuring out, uh, figuring out how to build this game, like the exact shape of it. But we did pick a prototype and we have about five more months to finish it. And then we really want to like release it on Steam and have a fully built game. Oh, that's great. Um, is it, are you going to bring anybody else in or is it just going to be you and uh, Friedman and just going to go with Yeah, it? I, think it's, I think it's just going to be the two of us. Um, we have our skill set is between the two of us, it's quite complete. Um, uh, Friedman is a really good artist, musician. We can both write code. I have some eye for visuals, so it overlaps also. It, it overlaps nicely and uh, yeah, I'm confident that we can do this. And it's kind of the question, that's like great. if you put in eight months to a game, you also don't need to sell an insane amount of copies to break even on that. So, you know, the deeper you go with the project, the more scary it gets, of course, with Cloud Gardens being three years in at some point, it was quite scary thinking, you know, how many copies do I have to sell to break even? Um, so that's the other advantage of doing it quick. That's actually a great uh, transition point to talking maybe a little bit about just the industry about the position of indie development within the games industry, you know, as a whole. Um, and, you know, I guess the first question I had would be, do you find yourself consciously thinking about yourself as an indie developer? And is that a meaningful label to you or just something you're like, okay, I'm an indie developer, I guess. Sure. Absolutely. But when you mentioned it to 
people when they say, "Oh, what do you do? I, I make games. Actually, I make indie games." It doesn't, you know, nobody knows what that is. So, well, for myself, obviously, I think of myself as an indie developer. Uh, a lot of the outside world, I feel, doesn't really know what that what that entails. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then, are you plugged into like some of the like game jam and like conference networks and convention networks for like indie development, like Indicate and stuff? Um, or you know the european equivalents um i'm just wondering is that something that's a part of your development process or kind of out of this so i think barely but it's it's something in my personality where i find it hard to to keep in touch with communities that i don't see daily um for a while in berlin here i worked at softland the indie game collective um you know a couple games that you will know come from their curious expedition death trash and that was brilliant because you would see them every day. You can talk about these kind of things. And that really helps you, helps keep you plugged in to, to a certain community. But as soon as it's something that's, you know, once a year or on Slack, I just, I forget about it. You know, you get so, so absorbed in a project and then it just, yeah, flies by. That's interesting. It's, it's like, a, you know, it, it's interesting to think of like, you know, I interviewed uh, the developers behind Boomerang X recently, um, a couple mm-hmm. of them. Um, and that was that started off as a student project that then got kind of combined with a game jam project. And then, then people sort of kind of leapt onto it. And you seem much yeah. more like solo, but you'll bring in somebody for maybe music on Cloud Gardens or. Yeah, that is how it ends up going. Even though now I'm, you know, we made the conscious decision to, to work together from the start on the concept, which is very fun. Because there's always a phase in a project when you're doing it solo where you just feel this is kind of boring, you know? You have nobody to high five with once you fix a problem. You have nobody to keep you accountable if you make stupid decisions. Um, even if you do hire people as freelancers, there is kind of this imbalance, you know, where it's still on your shoulders to make decisions about the direction of the project as a whole. So somewhere in the middle of Cloud Gardens, I said to myself, okay, I, I want to not work alone for the next one. I had said that to myself before, but for some reason I ended up doing another one so well. This time you're actually doing it. Um, this time I'm actually doing it. I'm happy about it. That's great. How are you feeling, you know, just in terms of the kind of material industrial side of things about where indie games are at right now? I feel like we're kind of maybe moving away from the indie apocalypse narrative, the indie apocalypse story. Yeah, yeah. You know, I feel like that, like, you know, there was understandable anxiety and concern there, but I also feel like yeah. maybe it got a little overblown. And maybe maybe we only realize you can only realize that retrospectively. Um, but yeah, I'm yeah. just wondering how you're feeling about the kind of state of the indie market, as it were. Absolutely. I think I'm quite lucky. I, and that it makes it easy for me to just say, well, I don't really know what the state of things is, but I can manage, you know, I, I can build another project and I have some confidence that it will be successful or at least break even. So in that sense, I never was quite worried. But then Friedemann said to me a couple of days ago that he thought, um, that the current form of like making and releasing a game. So you build a game, put it on steam and some people will buy it and you can live off of that. He said that he gives it 10 years tops and kind of thinking about it. I was like, Ooh, think about where Spotify is at right now. You know, like music, imagine games would be like that. And how much more stressful would that be? You know, like putting your game up on some platform, getting 0.001 cents per minute of playtime or something but it might go in that direction, actually. I think, you know, that is something that I'm quite scared of. I mean, this is, you know, when you look at the, you know, purchase of 
Blizzard Activision that's pending right now by Microsoft. Yeah. And you think about the fact that that's a purchase that's really seems oriented towards streaming services, towards you know, having a content pipeline for Game Pass. Yeah. I, I'll say this, I'm somebody, I like Game Pass. I discover lots of indie games through Game yeah. Pass. Um, and certainly not all the indie games I play are through there, but it's like, you know, I, I probably would not have played the game Lake, uh, which is essentially like a male yeah. delivery simulator. I, and it would never have occurred to me unless it was on Game Pass and I could download it and be like, I'll give it a try. Totally. And I, you know, I loved it. Um, but you know, so I do think there's ways in which it has supported folks. And I think maybe games that probably would not have come out or yeah. certainly would have gone out and just kind of sunk without it. But on the other hand, if you think about the long-term implications of it, um, I do the deals aren't public, but we mm -hmm. do know that some of the deals for games on Game Pass do in fact depend, the, the amount of money that game developers are receiving actually do depend about how long somebody's played it not just whether or yeah. not it's downloaded it yeah and that's something that kind of i don't know a little frightening it's a little frightening right and you can also wonder how will the platforms view deals with third parties if they have their own you know production pipeline internally like um and you know add to that the the, the, the fact that a lot of games get flown quickly you know will we get into so in that sense, maybe we don't have it so bad at the moment. I think, you know, you can say a lot about Steam. And I also think that, you know, just straight up 30% of revenue going to Steam. If you just look at the number, it can seem quite a lot. But it does give you a way to sell your game directly to players for them to complain about it. And you might or might not listen to those complaints. But um, maybe in 10 years, 10 years will be nostalgic for the current system. Right. It makes me think about... You know, because now the anxiety in, telev in television in particularly, right, is a splintering of all of these streaming services. So you have to have like oh, yeah. 10 streaming services. And I just wonder if we're not going to return to something like, you know, I remember in the 90s, like frequently downloading a shareware version on a site that maybe supported like 10 different developers and they would be basically like a hub for shareware and you download it and yeah. play. We were playing a lot of tile-based RPGs that way. And then I'd play <laughs> like, you know, five hours of it. And sometimes I would actually purchase it, you know, and I'd have to, yeah. I'd literally mail a check or cash to cool. like a source and get it. Yeah. And then like <laughs> wait like a month to get, you know, five floppies or something. Oh, brilliant. Um, I don't want to go back to, you know, to five, 3.5 inch floppies. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think it peaked and, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, uh, are there any, I mean, maybe this is the kind of question we could uh, close on, but are there any specific directions you'd like to see the industry headed in or maybe changes you'd like to see, kinds of support that you'd like to see more of? If, you know, anything that enables people to make stuff and kind of have their own audience without being subjected to the whims of a huge platform, I think is good. So any changes more towards you know, self-publishing, having your own community, being able to host that without, you know, buying into a huge platform. I think that's, that's, that's brilliant. And that's, that's what I like to see about Flash as well. You know, just this kind of very direct, somebody makes something and a hundred people play it and they love it. And if those people and you know, the people making that stuff, if they can live off it, that would be, that would be great. So just kind of not too rapid change in the other direction. That would be good. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, you don't mind me asking um to what degree 
have you had a chance to draw on like state art support at all? Just because, you know, some of the Swedish developers, um, some of the Northern European developers in particular, I know a lot of their yeah. games have been supported um, through government art funds. And I'm wondering if that's something you've drawn on, if that's something you see a future in, an expansion um, of that. I always thought that it wasn't feasible or kind of when I looked at it, I thought it would be too hard to to be to get real art subsidy. But I did get um, R&D sub subsidy for the more technical parts of the game. So it's kind of another route. And if you can if you can argue that you're researching something while making a game, which I think for games is fairly easy to do because you're always making something new, um, then you can get subsidy in that way. And I've, I've benefited from that a little bit. It was nice. Oh, that's great. Did you do that with Cloud Gardens? Um, yeah. Yeah, because I can totally see that, like plant simulation technology. Yeah, exactly. And the nice thing, um, it, I also benefited from it because you have to have a deadline and you have to show your research results. So you really do have to wrap things up and tie a bow around it at some point. And that's kind of nice. Like you are forced to actually do the thing that you propose to. That's great. Well, I don't want to hold you up too much more, but thanks so much for taking the time, Thomas. No, thank you. It was fun. Great. I appreciate it.